Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. All right, welcome back. Um, I will uh, do my best at pronunciation. <laughs> Linda, is it Galician? Is that how am I saying your name correctly? Galian. Galian, okay, thank you. Um, Linda was ordained as a Zen priest by Sojun Mel Weitzman in 2004 and received Dharma transmission from him in 2012. She's been a professional musician and a licensed clinical psychologist and has practiced Buddhism and yoga for over 30 years. Linda has been the president of the San Francisco Zen Center, Tassahara director and co-chair of the San Francisco Zen Center Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Committee. She is currently the Tonto, or the head of practice at Tassahara. Um, so welcome, Linda. Thank you for joining us. Great. Thank you very much. Good morning. And uh, I'm, I'm so honored and delighted uh, to be invited to speak here with all of you. And thank you very much to Chris, a dear old Zen Center friend, for inviting me today. Um, so we are now in the winter practice period at Tassahara. We just started, and Chris thought maybe it would be of interest to say a little bit about what it's like, what our schedule is like here. So um, the wake-up bell is at 3.45 in the morning, and we're in the Zendo by 4.15, uh, we have um, six periods of zazen every day, and two before breakfast, two mid-morning, and two after supper. There are Dharma talks and classes. We work for about three hours every afternoon to take care of Tassahara. There's time for exercise and a bath in the late afternoon, and then we go to bed at 9 o'clock. Um, so we're up well before light and bed well after, at least in the winter. Uh, once a month, we have a week-long sashin with 10 periods of zazen a day. Most of our meals are in a formal oriyoki style, which means that we're eating in the zendo, um, and it's a very beautifully choreographed um, way of serving and eating and receiving water and washing our bowls and putting them away, um, all completely self-contained and in full robes, as I'm wearing now. So it's, um, yes, we spend a lot of time in the Zendo, which mercifully is heated these days. Didn't used to be, but now it is. Um, and then we have a day off, a personal day, to catch up on things every five days. Um, there's no coming and going from the monastery for these 90 days. Everybody who's here is just here, and nobody comes in or goes out. Um, very, very few exceptions. So we become a really intimate group. And um, practice periods at Tassahara are just profoundly intimate, um, profoundly transformative for, for many people. And I want to warmly invite you to come to Tassahara 
your schedules and lives may not allow you to do a three-month practice period in the fall or winter, but perhaps you could come in the summer when we're open for guest season and you can come for a shorter period of time and there's different ways to come. So I hope you get to do that sometime if you haven't already. So uh, Abbot David Zimmerman is leading this winter practice period and we are studying karma. Um, many, many years ago when uh, Blanche Hartman, who was a former abbess of San Francisco Zen Center, uh, was just starting practice and she was practicing at Berkeley Zen Center with uh, my teacher as well as hers, Sojin Roshi. And it was a time when people were starting to go down to Tassajara. It had just opened. And she said, I keep hearing Tassajara this, Tassajara that. What's so special about Tassajara anyway? And Sojin just said very calmly, well, Tassajara is a place where everyone gets to see who you are. And you do too. So, uh, yeah, it's a very repetitious schedule. And you get to just watch things and people and yourself, you know, arise over and over and over again. So it can be a little like the movie Groundhog Day. And sometimes it feels like you're really stuck. And sometimes you get really into it. It's like, oh, oh, I, I see there's something going on here. What What am I bringing? What can I let go of? So. It's like that. So that is practicing with our ancient twisted karma. Every morning, we finish sitting zazen, we start service, and we say, all my twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. I think that's such a great way to start. Here I am with all my stuff, like it or not. You know, can we embrace that? Can we just fully embrace it? So, so today I want to talk about how we practice with our karma. Very practical. Um, so when we sit, when we practice, um, we, we intend to be settled and calm and opened and to be present and all of these things. And usually immediately we get to see all the ways that we're not. You know, all the stuff that arises. Uh, so these are our karmic habits that get in the way. So one way of framing practice that I find very helpful is as releasing, letting go, relaxing our habitual patterns of clinging, aversion, and delusion. The three poisons. So this is very simple, but as usual, it's not so easy. So um, here's an old Zen story about um, a teacher named Bird's Nest Roshi. And he was called Bird's Nest Roshi because he, he meditated very high up in a tree. And once a government official was passing by and he asked Bird's Nest Roshi, what is the teaching of Buddhism? And Bird's Nest Roshi uh, recited a verse from the Dhammapada which is an early uh, teaching of the Buddha. And uh, the verse says, not to commit wrong actions, but to do all good ones and keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. When the governor heard this, he was not impressed. 
And uh, he said, any child of three years knows that. The bird's nest, Roshi said, any three-year-old child, but even an 80-year-old cannot do it. So it's this doing. It's not just our good intentions. It's not even our vows. They guide us. But what are we doing? How are we actually living? How are we manifesting things? So uh, this this verse, which is one of the earliest Buddhist texts, is um, where the three pure precepts uh, developed from, to refrain from all evil, to do all good, and to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. So this is really an ancient and traditional way of expressing the Buddhist teaching. So how do we do it? So how do we let go of all that's harmful, do all that's good, and um, live for the benefit of all beings? So uh, the text I want to talk about today, uh, a very short section of it, is from Hongzhu's Practice Instructions. The, the book is called Cultivating the Empty Field. Uh, and the first section of that text just resonated so deeply with me when I first read it. I don't know that I could say what it meant then. I just knew that it had meaning for me. So the author, Hong Zhe, lived in 12th century China. He was abbot of Mount Tiantong, which is where uh, Dogen's teacher, Ru Jing, taught. And Hong Zhe also wrote a well-known collection of koans called the Book of Serenity. Um, and uh, Hong Zhe's writings had a very deep influence on Dogen. So I'm going to focus on just the first few sentences of these practice instructions. And they're sort of a summary statement of the whole text. The field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning. You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. So the field of boundless emptiness is true reality, Buddha nature, awakened mind. It's not something we create. It's what exists from the very beginning. It's not separate from us. It's not outside of us. It's not something we do or that we can grasp no matter how hard we try. It's something that we are part of. We are not separate from it. Um, and the question is, how do we realize this for ourselves? How do we experience it? You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. So I think that's what caught my attention so many years ago, is that so many of the teachings are about letting go, releasing, and relaxing. Um, Tension Rev. Anderson, for a long time, was saying, meet everything that arises with complete relaxation. And I thought, yeah, right. Not there yet. What do I do? I'm not relaxing with everything that arises. Uh, so when I read, you, know, you must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away, all the apparent habits, all the apparent tendencies that you have uh, solidified into habits. 
um, into apparent habits. That really resonated for me because I tend to try very hard. I tend to work really hard, try to grab things and hold on to them. I'm like, okay, here's some practice instructions about working with my karma because this is, this is karmic conditioning. Like what we're working with is our karmic conditioning. Karma just means action, acts of body, acts of speech, acts of mind, what we do, what we say, what we think. In other words, what we say to ourselves. And these are all interrelated. Body, speech, and mind are not separate. So the Buddha did not focus on actions like reflexes or involuntary acts, like a sneeze or a startle reflex, uh, nor on accidents. What he emphasized were intentional acts, the places where we have some agency in our lives, where we can make a, a choice and see some changes. So Hong Chu says we must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away our karmic habits. Changing habits of any kind requires effort and persistence. There's a lot of books out there about habit change right now, like Atomic Habits and a bunch of them, which are actually great. I found some of them to be very helpful in terms of specific pointers for um, practicing with different things in my life. Uh, one book, maybe it was this one, said uh, it takes 21 days to form a habit and 66 to make it stick. So uh, think of our karmic habits, how many years we've been practicing them now. So they're quite sticky and it will take some uh, consistent awareness, practice and consistent attention and effort to um, to do something different, to make some change, to let something go. Um, you probably, I'm sure you have your own stories about habit change, but here's one of mine. Years ago, I decided for various good logistical reasons, I was going to drive home a different way every day, the way I entered my block. It made more sense. It was safer getting out back onto the main street. Um, and it took me two weeks to be able to do that. The first few days, even though this was... It was just like, oh, this would be a much better thing to do. There was no resistance, no nothing. I just had a habit of doing it one way. I wanted to change it to another way. For several days, I didn't even remember it. And then I remembered just as I passed the place where I was supposed to turn in. And then I slammed on the brakes and barely made it. And then finally, by the end of two weeks, I actually I made that change. And it, I had the idea that I would just make a decision to change something and I would change it. And that would be that. So it was really humbling to see how hard it was to change something so simple. But with repeated attention and effort, I did. So that was also very encouraging, both humbling and encouraging. So these um, persistent, sticky Karmic habits, the one we get caught in again and again, many of these developed or some version of them developed early in our lives uh, and usually for really, really good reasons because they helped us survive or stay safe um, or what we understood at that time as surviving and staying safe and taking care of our families. Um, they may have served us well and maybe they're not serving us so well currently. 
So um, these are the really these are the really fun ones to work with. The really nitty gritty little diamond dust down there. Um, so a big part of practice is increasing our range of where we have possibility and choice, what we can see, what we can, what becomes workable. So I have a few Tassajara stories to share with you. Uh, here's one. Uh, I think it was my first summer in Tassajara. And Tassajara summers are long. We're taking care of the gas season. It's five months long and they're hot. And they're very, very physical. And most of us coming did not have such physical work in our backgrounds. So it's my first summer. It had been over 100 degrees for probably a week. and Somebody passed me and said or did something that ordinarily would have really affected me. And it didn't. And about 30 seconds later, I realized that there was like this tiny voice in the back of my mind that was like, I just don't have energy for that right now. I had somewhere semi consciously chosen to not go there, something that I ordinarily would have thought I had no control over. And I, I think it was because I really didn't. It's like there's something about practice, a Tassahara in your own practice, that's just kind of a wearing down of some of those edges. You see it over and over again. It's like, you know, I don't actually have to do that. And I'm not going to do it. And I since then, I related very differently in a subtle way to things that I think are just how I am and um, opening the possibility for more spaciousness, more possibility of change. So I want to talk about each one of these four things, purify, cure, grind down, and brush away. And there is no explicit explanation of these terms in this text or particularly anywhere else. But th this is how I understand them through, you know, my practice history. And, uh, and I want to share these with you and see how they resonate with your history and your experience and what resonates for you and what questions arise for you. So I'm going to start from the other end. So brush away. I think of that as um, like coming back to the breath. One way of um, teaching beginning meditation is it's like training a puppy to go on the paper. Just keep coming back to the breath with patience and compassion and just repeated again and again, very persistently. Just come back, come back, come back. So it's that kind of energy. Just let go. In this case, it's just let go of what you are holding on to. So the, there's two sides of brush away. There's what are you brushing away and what are you leaving? So what are you leaving is the intention. So when you're just sitting, you know, if your object is the breath, that's your intention. That's your focus. That's what you're coming back to. And then what are all the 10,000 things that are coming in? 
what are the distractions? Is it physical? Is it mental? Is it what you want to do after you get up? Is it work? So there's this awareness and discernment. This is what I'm doing now. This is what I've chosen to be the most important thing right now that I'm committed to. Tying myself to this in a certain way. And then what can I let go of? So this is where vow comes in. Vow and releasing, relaxing, letting go, arise together. What are we doing? What are we not doing? And I think this is why, you know, in Zen, worldly concerns are called dust. And I think it's because we keep brushing it away and it keeps coming back. You know, the dust just keeps coming back and then we keep polishing it. You know, it's not to fix it permanently. It's just like, oh yeah, stuff happens. Then we address it. Then we take care of it. And then we go on to the next thing. We used to have a dog at Tassajara uh, named Madra. Madra was a very um, willful dog, a very dominant male dog. And Madra caused some difficulties. Madra was also a very poorly trained dog, really a not trained dog. You can imagine a dog living in community of 60 people with people coming and going and no one person ever training it. It was a, not an easy dog to begin with. We discovered later. Um, but at some point after Madra had bitten a few people, um, one person took upon herself the responsibility of really training Madra. And that was quite a lesson for me because I've never had dogs and I've never been really around dogs in a, you know, consistent, intimate way or watched one be trained. Uh, and one day I was watching um, Sonia, who is a trainer, uh, training Madra with a stick. She could play tug with a stick, but she uh, would never let Madra win. You know, she always had to have the last word. So it was clear who was on top. You know, so are we on top or are our old habits on top? You know, who's, who's in charge here? Uh, but the thing that really got me was Madra sitting there with a stick in his mouth and she's just looking at him and she says, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it. Madra looks up at her father and drop the stick. And I thought, man, if Madra can drop it, I can too. And so for a long time, when I would, um, sit, I would, um, if I was having trouble letting go of thoughts, I would drop my jaw. I just went, oh. And it was oddly helpful to just, you know, drop it, drop it just very persistently, very patiently. So what is that very subtle doing to letting go? We often think when we let go, it just passes. But it's not really like that. There's there's a very subtle doing in there, very subtle to relaxing. So you can get, pay attention to and get in touch with that. So next one is grind down. So in the song of the grass hut, Shuto says, meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar 
with their instruction. Find grasses to build a hut and don't give up. So when it gets hard, uncomfortable, boring, feels like it's not working, don't give up. Dig one deep well, not a bunch of shallow ones, and get really intimate with those karmic habits. I now fully avow, yep, there's that again. Okay, I embrace you. I accept that you are really there. It is it's really happening, not in denial. Uh, so doing the work is like any kind of practice. You know, you got to do the reps. You know, this is like a practice workout. You know, just continuous practice makes profound change, actually. And this is practicing with both um, virya or energy, effort, and determination and kashanti, which is tolerance, patience, forbearance. So again, it's this balance because too much effort can be like fixing and controlling and too much patience or misapplied patience can become complacency or giving up or just despair or indifference or forget about it. Uh, So finding some balance is very helpful. Once I was, um, there was this state of um, this kind of stuck, yucky confusion that went on for a few days. And I tried a lot of things to to move it. And it wasn't. And I, I ended up just sitting with it and not trying to fix it or make it better or change it. And it was very murky. It was like, I couldn't even tell what was going on. It was very confusing, but not in any clear way. It was just like being in a unpleasant fog and just being present with that very subtle the that was happening. It eventually cleared. So grinding down, we get to see kind of the positive side of impermanence, which is that things just change. We can support them to change, but they will change regardless. What are the changes that we want to support? What are we intending? What are we vowing? What is what is the world, the life, the relationships that we want to create? So cure... I understand as care, concern for our troubles. Because sometimes it's, um, we really need to not just tough it out, not just persevere, not just let it keep going, but really need to attend to something that may be amiss, to have some inquiry, uh, to, to pay attention to in the right way, to restore to wholeness. And this feels really appropriate because Buddha was also known as the great healer as well as the great teacher. And the teachings that he offered were considered as medicine to alleviate suffering. So when we pull out like the arrow of clinging or the arrow of anger, it requires 
some clear understanding of the ailment and of what causes the suffering. We have to see how it arises, what the causes are in ourselves and in the world. And then we can release it. We see what the remedy is because we can see how it arises. We can see if we're doing anything extra that makes it stay around longer. So sometimes with the really sticky things, the question may arise, do I really want to let this go? What will it mean for me if I let go of this identity, this behavior, this expectation, whatever it is? It can be really scary. Um, Because it changes uh, some fundamental, it can change some fundamental sense of who we are. So in the cure, there's also, it's also very important to be kind, compassionate presence with ourselves and have support. Um, We have a lot of Stellar's Jays at Tassajara. They're beautiful, large, blue, bright blue, very talkative, very um, uh, rather aggressive birds, um, similar to crows. And they come around a lot in the summer when it's warm and people are eating outside and they really want to steal food. And they do. I've had Jays literally do a flyby and steal a sandwich out of my mouth as I was biting into it. So they're, they're persistent. They're on this. And we don't want the Stellar's Jays coming around, particularly in the summer and attacking the guests. And, you know, we want to not feed the wildlife and all of this stuff. And the cure is to not eat outside. So to the extent that we are willing to not eat outside, the jays won't come around. To the extent that we do eat outside, they'll come around. So are are we feeding our old karmic habits or not? You know, are we feeding the things that lead to stuff that we would rather not be doing or not? So we've gone back and forth with the stellar shades, and sometimes we don't feed them, and sometimes we just accept them the way they are and that they come around and, oh, well, we'll live with it for a while. So it's not a, it's not like a one-size-fits-all. Like, what is important for your liberation? How do you discern that for yourself? So finally, purify This is the um, ultimate or true remedy, is to purify our mind. And the Mahayana Buddhist understanding, I think Buddhism generally, but particularly in the Mahayana in Zen, um, the understanding of purification is not about getting rid of defilements or impurities. The ultimate remedy is non-duality. It's experiencing non-duality directly. It's not getting rid of anything. It's not coming from a place of aversion, but rather a place of radical inclusion. No separation. This is uh, primordial reality, the true nature of all things, where we are completely not separate. Our karmic habits are, you know, in this realm, there is no problem. Blue jays are just birds. They're just doing their thing. 
There's no problem. So this is both and uh, the two truths. So we can practice seeing things as not separate. We can practice this acceptance. It doesn't mean that we don't have to do something about it. We just accept that it's there and we don't have to be reactive with it. Milarepa was a Tibetan Buddhist yogi um, many hundred years ago, thousand years ago-ish, I think. Um, And he lived in a cave very high up in the Himalayas and practiced there for many years. And one day he came home, probably from collecting firewood, and um, his cave was completely overrun with demons. And uh, he was quite alarmed. So he, he tried various things uh, to make them go away. He, uh, he cast spells because he used to be a magician before he came to, became a, a practitioner. So he cast spells and some of them left. And he made offerings to the local spirits of the place and some of them left. And he... Uh, did this and he did that. And each time some of them left. But in the end, there were a few that were just, it was one, in fact, that just wouldn't go anywhere. And it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally he said, all right, demons, since you're not going anywhere, we're going to have to live together. Stop by from time to time. And we'll have a chat. And then they all vanished. So this non-reactive mind. There's another story where the final thing that he did instead of was, instead of inviting them all for tea, um, was he put his head in the mouth of the biggest demon. Just, I give in. And the demon dissolved and vanished. Maybe you've had an experience in your own practice where you just turned completely toward some demon, some great hindrance. And when you were just present with that, not turning away, not touching, just there with it, not caught, not resisting, just present, it changed. Things changed. It became not what it was. In a sense, it vanished. So this is this is the process of purification, of seeing through our usual mind. So these these approaches are not uh, gradual or developmental. They could be said to be just different ways that different people. Uh, approach situations or maybe different approaches that are suitable for different situations. Um, I find it helpful to have something to do a little bit with my mind to help it um, come back, settle down. So The first section of Hongzhi, 
ends uh, with thoughts clear, sitting silently, wander into the center of the circle of wonder. This is how you must penetrate and study. Do we have time for questions? Yes, we do. Thank you, Linda, by the way. I have a question. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, thank you. Gorgeous talk. Thank you very much. Um, a number of years ago, I decided to domesticate the backyard of my apartment building and um, got some help from a gardener in the GBF. And um, um, and I love this lawn that he, he just rolled out this lawn and turf and it's been great. But then, um, oh, that predatory. Anyway, it's been destroyed by a raccoon that comes and flips up the uh, the lawn and um, eats scrubs. And it's pretty much, no, there's a little patch that's still okay. And, you know, I, I'm trying to, <laughs> to resist poisoning this thing or trapping it. Or, but it's, it's, um, I've enjoyed it so much and just to see it slowly being mauled. It's, it's a real, um, um, I'm wondering how powerful is this metaphor in my life that I'm attached to something that invites destruction. Um, is there, can I, if I consider that the, the raccoon is a demon, um, how would I cohabit with it? <laughs> <laughs> when it's destroying my yard. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm sure I can. Been... I can just see. No, I can just totally see that raccoon. Like, it's like, oh, look, let's peel up the edge of this lawn. <laughs> oh, it's going everywhere. What's underneath? This is so fabulous. They've just, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, well, I don't know if there's anything you can put in the yard to deter it. Um, <laughs> But it's, you know, I mean, I'm not a gardener and I know nothing about raccoons. Uh, I, it's more like what in, in your mind is what I'm right. pointing to. <laughs> Are there ways that you can detour a raccoon or is it just that a lawn won't actually work <laughs> given that you have raccoons or what yeah. are you willing to do to the raccoons? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, these are, I, I, you know, I think we always want, wonderful and beautiful things and sometimes mm -hmm. uh they don't a lot of the time they don't work out exactly how we thought they were going to <laughs> in one way or another um you know and there's drought and climate change too and it's like oh you know it's just here's here's a new thing in your environment so mm -hmm. how do you want to relate with raccoons in your environment clearly the the um the grubs under the turf are really really um tasty appealing yeah yeah thank you i, I didn't mean to go off into trivial attachments <laughs> but it's it's in my mind <laughs> but it is an attachment it's like you put all this work into it i can yeah. also what yeah you put all this work in you yeah. created this you know and it's like it. yeah. it's not happening so what what happens <laughs> how, will, how will you how will you meet this 
by your description, apparently impossible situation. And, you know, is it just the one raccoon? Can you get it trapped and taken away by animal control? Can you, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> but look, but look for some efforts. <laughs> Things you might do. I don't know. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I'm, I'm asking you to unmute. And you have your next question. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for a great talk, Linda. Um, these realizations, these moments where you don't react the way you normally or usually would react it, and to see that little, wow, there's a little moment there where you, there's, I, I feel it physically. It's almost like I, I kind of vision neural pathways sort of separating and there's even some energy that gets released. I sort of visualize dust going back into the earth or something and, when I have those moments, I try to really honor it, to see it and even relax into it for a moment. Um, my qu- I've been spending yesterday and this morning watching Thich Nhat Hanh's memorial service that's happening in Vietnam, and it's so amazingly impressive that that practitioner had such an effect around the world with so many of us in many different ways and had such a light, simple way, a really honest delivery of s- a major Buddhist philosophy, really. And I just, I'm just honoring and I'm, I really encourage people to see it. It's on the um, Plum Village YouTube website. My question to you is, um, your teacher, Mel Weitzman, he was sort of ground zero for Zen in the Bay Area and his streams have gone throughout the United States and to Europe. And I had the chance to meet Mel. I mean, he's, like right next to um, Suzuki Roshi in the lineage. And um, he was so empowering just to be around or hear him talk or, or just spend time like cleaning a bowl with him or dusting or, you know, he just had this in simple intensity about him. And I'm just wondering, he passed away a year ago now. And I'm wondering, has any teaching that some special little story you might have be able to offer out like two minutes or something of, Something that he impressed on you. Doesn't have to be deep, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's not deep, but it's one of the things that I really take with me. He loved work practice. He really loved work practice as, you know, and we would have work days at Berkeley Zen Center, which is my home temple. And he used to be an abstract expressionist painter, and I think was also a house painter for a period of time. And one day, uh, he was putting a fresh coat of varnish on the window sills, on the windows around there. And the way that he was applying varnish, and you know, varnish you have to apply very particularly because it dries out quickly. So there's a way of like, it's very precise because it's it's a fussy thing to work with. And the attention that he gave to that, uh, as you were saying, this kind of intense, quiet focus and love, like just putting on this varnish seemed like an expression of love. And he always talked about love. I mean, he didn't always talk about love. He was always expressing love. And periodically he would get cranky and say, we know people say we never talk about love. What else are we doing all day long? <laughs> so he really understood his practice as being about love. Um, 
And when someone asks him about metta practice, say, how do you, how do you do metta practice? Like, do you do it during zazen? And he thought about it, and no one had ever asked him that before. And this was on a Vipassana retreat. They were doing metta practice, like a concentration practice. And he said, it's the only practice I ever do. Wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, I'm always generating love. Or you could say light. I like to say light from right here. And he touched his heart, touched his lower belly. Thanks for asking. Wow, thank you. Other questions, comments? Okay, well, it looks like we're um, ready to wrap up. Uh, so now is our time to just make announcements. And um, Donna is our poly word for generosity. And um, when you contribute to GBF, you help us pay speaker honorariums, rent for the meeting space on Bartlett, which we hope to return to again eventually, um, our, the production and distribution of our quarterly newsletter and um, and those kind of things. Uh, next week's speaker is Trip Wheel. And then, Linda, we have a dedication of merit, but um, if you're welcome to offer your own, would you like to have yours or ours? I would love to hear what you do. Thank you for asking. All right. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all things. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Grisha. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Have a great week, everybody. Yeah. Thanks so much, Linda. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful to see all of you today. Um, I, I think I'm interested in coming up there. So you said you don't have to do a three month. You could just go for a day or. Um, yeah, you can come for, you can come and do work exchange in the summer and be part of the student population. Mm-hmm. I think the minimum in the summer is like five days. It's all up on the website, sfcc.org slash Tassahara. Okay. Um, look under work and stay and you can come as a guest, uh, for as, as little as one day. You can also do guest practice, which is halfway between student and guest. So you uh, follow the schedule in the morning and work in the morning and then you're free all afternoon and evening. So a lot, and it's, um, I think it's only like, it's less than a hundred dollars a night. I forget exactly what it is now, but it's, um, quite reasonable considering that includes all your meals and everything. So. Nice. All right. Thank you. Hope to see you this summer. I have an unrelated question. Uh, Are you uh, affected by the fires in Big Sur at all? Or are you too far away? Not currently. No, it's it's actually 18 miles away from us uh, over mountainous terrain. But we're definitely keeping our eye on it. Um, Mm -hmm. So far, the conditions are favorable and i know a lot of fire crews are on there they're dropping retardant and there's also hand crews cutting fire lines in mountains so even though it's very rough terrain they're really uh 
going at it. They don't want this spreading. There's a lot of people living around there. Yeah, yeah, thanks. That's great. Crazy to have fires like this in January, isn't it? Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, I love to meet everything that arises with complete relaxation. That's my... uh, (laughs) That's my unrealistic goal for today. <laughs> Thanks. So. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.